Hey, welcome to Collector's Quest. This is a side quest or a microcast. I'm not sure what we're calling these. We might be going back to microcasts. But basically, I'm going to be busy for most of this month. And rather than just leave you for weeks without a podcast, which I recognize we sometimes do, we're each going to make an individual podcast so we can fill up the time and you don't forget about us when you open up your podcast app. And so I'm going to talk about something I've wanted to make an episode on probably since I started on the Collector's Quest podcast. This has been sitting, rotting away in our episode's idea document, the difference between different types of aftermarket games. And if you're one of my very few YouTube subscribers, I already made a video on this, so I've probably said this all before, and it's presented way better over there with pictures, so you can just skip this entirely. But if you like listening to your audio, I'm going to talk about the different types of aftermarket games, because... One of the things that really annoys me is when people, well, okay, it annoys me when people just dismiss uh, all homebrew and, and everything and just like, ah, it's all new stuff. I don't care about that. But the thing that annoys me about that is because they equate bootlegs and hacks and translations and reproductions, like counterfeit reproductions, with all the cool stuff out there, like homebrew and, and games that are still in development by like indie developers for SNES and NES. And I think all that stuff's really cool and it doesn't deserve to be thrown out with a fake copy of Little Samson or a, a bootleg of Chuck Yeager's fighter combat. Those pings are Johnny telling me that these are officially called side quests, guys. We did it. So the definition of an aftermarket game, and actually, let me just go to the beginning here. So Christian Dietering is a big homebrew guy and he's actually into a lot of aftermarket games, even bootleg stuff. Uh, he did a talk on this at the Let's Play Gaming Expo, and it's on Vimeo, and I steal a lot of terms from him, and you could say I've, I'm have i inspired by him in a lot of ways when I talk about this stuff. Um, so if you're interested in that, you should also go check him out. I'm not claiming to, like, I'm not, like, an authority on aftermarket games, but an aftermarket game would be considered any game released after the lifespan of a console. And where a console's lifespan kind of ends is hard to pin down. I would probably call it after the last video game was released for that console, kind of at normal big box retail or normal retail. Some people would say when the console itself stops getting sold in stores, but that leads to kind of weird situations because just for example, Odyssey 2, one of the consoles I love talking about, uh, I believe the Odyssey 2 wasn't being sold in stores when the two Imagic games came out for it uh, much later. So for something like NES, I would probably personally put it at like Wario's Woods, which I think was 1994. And then Cheetah Men 2 was kind of found slash sort of released in 1995, I think. But then you come into things like, well, the Sachin games, I know Sachin games were sold to like NES God, like a super obscure Sachin game was sold in the early 2000s. Would I consider that an aftermarket game? I don't really know. It, it's kind of a weird situation. So it's one of those things like making your own lists. You have to decide strictly for you what would you consider aftermarket. Honestly, there's so few people who even care about these games that most people are just going to go with like the licensed NES definition for something like this and say that whatever came out in the 2000s. It, it doesn't count. It's a statue game. But then within that are just all sorts of different categories. There's homebrews, there's reissues, there's there's these indie games, there's just a bunch of bootleg crap. And I think the main distinction, there's there's basically two giant categories you could put aftermarket games into. There's the bootleg stuff and there's the legitimate stuff. And I'm not saying that as like a 
think about the developers you're 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 stealing their 30-year-old games. It's just that personally to me, I only care about collecting legal releases because once something is bootleg, even if it's a little bootleg, it just means that anyone can make infinite copies of it. If you make a super cool bubble bubble hack, if you program like 99% of it, it's the coolest hack ever. Uh, it's going to show up on AliExpress and there's there's no, re well, if it shows up on AliExpress, there's no recourse anyway. But you, you don't have any legal recourse because you're it's not your game. You just made a hack of someone else's game. You don't own that IP. So it, it's not a morality thing. It's just that the line has to be drawn somewhere. And if you own or license 100% of your game and then release it, that is clearly your thing. It's a legitimate thing on the market, I think. That makes it much more collectible. Obviously, in all sorts of hobbies, there's all different people who collect all sorts of bootleg things. Not knocking you if you like that stuff, but this is the main distinction I see personally. And so the first thing I want to talk about is reissues, which is probably the newest category. It's where uh, I would consider a reissue any old game that has now been re-released in the aftermarket. And so the obvious example for that is what we always talk about. I am 8-Bit, Mega Man 2, and Mega Man X. I would say that's a reissue. They, they took a game, they kind of repackaged it, but the ROM on the chip is the exact same game. So it's, it's like just a new version of the game. I mean, it's cool that those are coming out. I mean, they're overpriced and pretty stupid, but I really like these. And then another kind of different one would be Yakuza on PS2. I, I'm forgetting exactly when this came out. This came out in the mid to late 2010s, I think. It was well after the PS2 was dead. Like, PS2 died somewhere like 2014 with some soccer game, I'm sure. I could have probably prepared and found out when this came out. But Yakuza for PS2, it was Yakuza was like popular on the PS3 and PS4. And, and they wanted to re-release the first few games that came out on PS2. You might distinguish this from the Mega Man 2 and Mega Man X because this is, it's distinguishable from the original release, but it's clearly just another print run of an existing thing. It's not repackaged. It's not made any fancier. It's just a straight reprint. And then there's like multi-carts. You've got like that all-star collection on NES and oh my God, Retrobit put that out, I think. That's not really a re-release of an existing game. It's more they're they're licensing and packaging up all of these existing games. I mean, it's kind of its own thing. I would throw it into this category just because it's easy. Same thing with something like Holy Diver. Holy Diver was a Famicom game that was re-released on an NES cartridge where, yeah, it's repackaged on an NES cartridge. It never technically came out on NES, but it might as well be called a reissue in my opinion. And another just super crazy example, um, Return of Double Dragon is the Japanese version of Super Double Dragon on Super Famicom released on Super Nintendo. Does that count as a reissue? I would personally say yes. You, I mean, I don't think there's any way you can call that a brand new game. But if you really, I mean, this stuff is so nebulous, you could define it however you want. So maybe you do. Um, that thing's even weirder because it doesn't work on a real Super Nintendo. It only works on clone consoles, but that's a whole nother story. Aside from reissues, there's also uh, first issues. I don't know what I would call these. Just regular aftermarket games, maybe. Um, something like Socks the Cat. It was a prototype game that was never released, but then someone bought and officially licensed it I believe they finished it in some way. It probably needed some like packaging up to make it a 100% playable game. 
And then they released it for the first time, you know, 20 years after the game was made. In the YouTube video, I kind of just threw it into the reissue category because it's convenient. It's probably not. I just feel like, yeah, it's, it's a game that was developed a long time ago, but was only released now, which is kind of the same for all the reissues, but this never had an original release. So this is, I don't know what you want to call it. A first issue aftermarket game. There's someone come up with a cool term for it. Again, <laughs> this is so nebulous. Just do it. And so the big category on the legal side of aftermarket games is obviously homebrew. And to use the Wikipedia definition, that's software produced by consumers for proprietary hardware platforms that are not typically user programmable. So I guess computers don't count. But when you think of homebrew, you basically think of a small self-taught guy just making his own games. Sometimes you'll think of like a small team. You rarely really think of people that are doing it for profit, although some of them might be. And you almost never think of people that are doing it for a living. I personally have no idea how long Homebrew has been around. I assume forever. Uh, one of the first ones I could think of is Amok for Odyssey 2, which is from 1998, and that came out on a cartridge. You could still buy that. Uh, but other like popular ones you would think of, uh, Battle Kid, uh, The Legends of Aulia, Micro Mages. There's a lot of them. A lot of them, literally, you just go on a forum, and it would be like some guys like, I finished my game. I want to sell cartridges of it. PM me if you want a cartridge of this game. Uh, that's probably less common now. A lot of people just take it to Kickstarter and you'll see a Kickstarter for a game and it'll make like $30,000. And I think even if it is making a significant amount of money, I'm totally fine calling it homebrew. And there is that kind of condition in the homebrew definition that it's made by consumers, um, which kind of makes you think not professional developers. But these are, for the most part, smaller, single-person projects, even if they are, like, multi-year-long, complete passion projects for this. And I, I think, regardless of the money and the size of the development team, I think it has a very much, I know it when I see it, whether this is, like, homebrew versus an independent game. But, again, it's a judgment call. Not very many people are into this, so you can make your own definitions for what you want. And just as a minor note, just in case you don't know, there are just art and music cartridges uh, for different consoles. I'm more familiar with the NES and 2600 ones, but they'll just be cartridges that just have 8-bit pixel art or 8-bit music, and there'll be 8-bit music albums released on a cartridge, and I would put those all in the homebrew umbrella. And then on the other side of homebrew, there's big publisher releases. I don't really have a name for this, but they're not really independent games. They might have a, a major publishing label on them. Um, but Unholy Night is one of the big ones I could think of recently, which was, uh, it's a Super Nintendo game made by SNES developers and published by Retroism, uh, which publishes a lot, like they published it straight to Amazon. There was no Kickstarter for this. It wasn't like a, a kind of a community effort on a forum or anything. This was made to make money. And one of the things you'll see with games like this is a homebrew game will essentially never go in value. The guy will make his cartridges, they'll sell them for $35 or whatever. And if you want a cartridge, you'll have to buy that for $35. Uh, Unholy Night is a big old pile of garbage. So despite it's having an MSRP of $50, it has been on sale as low as like $15, shipped with Prime, like complete in box, which would be unheard of on like the actual homebrew side. They must have made so much of this crap. But besides just crappy cash grabs like that, um, there's a lot of professional development work that goes into some of the honestly shitty plug and play consoles, uh, like the original Atari flashback uh, or the Genesis flashback. 
So the original Atari Flashback actually runs on Famicom hardware. And actually a lot of these like old crappy composite plug and play stuff, it all runs on Famicom hardware. A lot of it is just NES system on a chip. So when you're playing the original Atari Flashback, you are playing Atari 2600 games that have been ported to the NES that look and sound like Atari games. It's actually pretty cool when you think about it. And since that stuff was developed in like 2005, I would personally consider those aftermarket games, even if they're just ports of existing Atari games, those are aftermarket games. And then a lot of these also have those terrible homebrew games. Well, one of the things is that uh, a lot of the development for this kind of stuff is in China. Um, and people there know how to develop for these NES system on the chips. And that's why you can see like these 40 homebrew NES games, because it's like, well, who's who's making these terrible NES games for these plug and play cartridges? Well, these guys had to go and program all these Atari games on the NES. So they know how to program NES games. So they're like, well, we can increase the value here. Let's make another 40 terrible homebrew games for the Sega flashback thing. And now we got that. Uh, I'm almost positive the Sega Flashback does not run on an NES on a chip, and that's Genesis Homebrew. Besides the point, you get the idea of what I'm talking about with these these kind of big publisher releases. There's no way you would consider them Homebrew if they're being professionally developed. But there is kind of a gray area. And so something like Mega Cat Studios, they are a, they're an independent game company, and they they develop NES games, and I believe they call them Homebrew, but they show up at every single convention uh, they don't sell on Amazon, but they do sell on their website. And I have to assume that at least some of these guys are working full time doing this thing. And I mean, they're probably these self-taught hobbyists or they're licensing games from self-taught hobbyists, which they have done. But I personally don't know whether to consider that homebrew or whether to consider it a bigger publisher release. And, you know, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe there's no point in really drawing a distinction. It's up to you. And uh, that's pretty much it for what's legal. On the illegal side, there's a uh, there's a lot more variety. Uh, just to start out with, like, uh, just regular bootleg games, just stuff that exists and is re-released in the same format, more or less, without permission, but there's no intent to deceive. So it's not like a counterfeit. It's just like, here's this thing, you know it's fake, but it's pretty much the same thing as what once existed. Some of the things in here, uh, retro USB, Nintendo World Championships, repro. I mean, any repro would be in here. Uh, that's not like, it's not like causing harm to the market. I don't think that it's a terrible thing that people want to play an original kind of Nintendo World Championships cartridge on their NES. But I mean, there, it's not like a legal release. You, you can't, Nintendo could sue you for that. Uh, something that people used to do on Nintendo Age a lot is uh, package up old prototypes. Like they would find a prototype and then there would be a release of that prototype. They'd be like, oh, there's only 200 of this prototype we're going to make reproduction cartridges of. And yeah, it's the first time that game might have been released. But obviously that's not a legal release of the game. Just because you found a prototype doesn't mean I now own the development rights to this prototype. No, you found a copy of some software that you don't own. So that's obviously a bootleg any kind of NTSC PAL conversion kind of game. Uh, there's a Mr. Gimmick from Retro USB, obviously bootleg. Uh, Rose Colored Gaming used to make these beautiful bootlegs. Marvelous is one, which is a Super Famicom RPG that they packaged up in this wonderful wooden cartridge. I'm, I'm sure it had maps. I can't exactly remember at this point. 100% bootleg. Would not count that in any sort of collection. I could go make a, the same copy of Marvelous and it would be just as legitimate a lot less beautiful, but just as legitimate as the uh, 
rose colored gaming release. And then also you'll see, uh, again, used to be big on Nintendo age. Uh, people would take, uh, popular Famicom games and then release them uh, in NES format. And they'd usually make up like a black box style, uh, box for it. I just, I just don't understand this one because Famicom games, especially popular ones in general, worthless. You could literally take the PCB out of a Famicom game, slap a $5 converter board on it, print your own label for the art. You could make your own it for $20. It would be arts and crafts. I'm trying not to get emotional here. We're just talking about some, some bootleg aftermarket games, man. And then some uh, other just kind of general bootlegs would be bootleg multi-carts obviously all over nes from the 90s until right now you can go on aliexpress you can buy brand new bootleg multi-carts for the nes i kind of love that like not even not even like the same roms like you'll find different roms like people are still putting together bootleg multi-cart compilations no idea what the market for that is like but it's kind of interesting that it's out there then a major category on the bootleg side would be hacks and then translations. The same exact thing as a hack. There's no difference between a hack and a translation. A translation is just a hack where they change the text. And so you'll find these on Etsy. You'll find these on, on repro sites and stuff. Uh, so something like a Simon's quest redacted is one that the angry video game nerd has brought up where uh, it makes Simon's quest easier. It makes the hints more direct. Uh, it, it speeds up and streamlines some elements of the gameplay. It's a more kind of modern on rails way to play the game. And that's fine if you want to play the game like that. But I'm talking about owning a physical cartridge and I'm trying not to get on my high horse here, but this is all junk that's made in China or made by some guy in his garage who doesn't own the rights to either the hack or the game that he's hacking. And this is just a pet peeve of mine because I know a couple of hackers and they don't even want pre-patched ROMs of their games distributed across the internet because a pre-patched ROM is technically illegal. And who made that hack? Well, they did. So the assumption would be that they're the ones distributing that pre-patched ROM for free. And then when you burn that onto a cartridge and sell it for profit, all of a sudden their name is now attached to a product that is being illegally sold. So not only are you selling their work that they want to get out there for free for profit, but you are attaching their name to an illegally sold product. So just personally, I think buying and selling hacks and translations is just massively disrespectful to the people who are actually doing the work in the ROM hacking community. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, these are out there and I would not recommend you buy them, but that's that. And then also kind of a kind of in between a hack and a homebrew might be the fan game, or uh, if you want to give it a very long and bad name, copyright infringing homebrew. So this would be an originally developed game that uses someone else's IP. And so there's like a, there's a Pac-Man for the Atari 2600, Pac-Man 4K. And it's just a much more arcade accurate version of Pac-Man. But obviously they don't have the rights to, to remake a Pac-Man game, but it is their code from the ground up. And then another one that was a big deal was a Princess Rescue for the Atari 2600 as well. Uh, this was a, a Super Mario Brothers style game. Kind of bullshit because this one it didn't actually have Mario and Peach and his Atari graphics. So really, you know, it, it's, it looks like garbage, <laughs> but technically this was considered a Mario game and it was considered to be infringing on Nintendo's IP. And then uh, a huge part of this category is just people who port straight up port old arcade games 
to old platforms. And you'll see that you just scroll through lists of uh, aftermarket Atari or ColecoVision or Commodore games, uh, you, or you keep up with the release lists on this stuff. And it's just always constantly, constantly uh, porting some like um, I ported Bosconian to the ColecoVision or whatever. Or I've made the most arcade perfect Bosconian for the ColecoVision that can possibly be made if there already was a Bosconian for ColecoVision. And uh, just personally, I think some of these can be kind of interesting because it's cool to see what people can do on the hardware. Uh, I wouldn't collect them just because I don't like bootleg stuff. I don't think it's kind of like a dick move to collect these like hacks and translations because people generally don't want their name attached to that stuff. But the people making kind of like these arcade ports, if they're up for sale by like Collector Vision or something, generally it's because the developer wanted it to be for sale. So you've got my okay to go ahead and buy these if you really want to. And then the last category of bootlegs, counterfeits. And the, the only thing I really have to say about this is that I hate the term reproductions because you could call these reproductions, but reproductions is a reproduction. So the reissue category should be reproductions. It should really be called licensed reproductions or, or something like that. But because the word reproduction has been essentially ruined by counterfeits, uh, we have to use it for this category. And so a counterfeit would be a one-to-one -one bootleg version of a game that's intended to basically deceive people. And I'd say there's basically two categories of this. There's there's Mario 64, which it, like no one is looking for a collectible copy of Mario 64. But if some, I was going to say idiot, if some normal person is browsing eBay, if my mom is browsing eBay and she's just, she wants to buy me a copy of Mario 64 and she sorts by lowest price and oh... There's one from China for $17.99, as opposed to all these $27 ones that are real copies of the game. She might be fooled by that. This is probably the biggest problem with counterfeits. It's not Nintendo World Championships. It's not Little Samson. It's the just regular people who are buying low-quality garbage from China. And I don't mean to dump on China. Just literally all of these come from China. And then, like I said, the, the other category would be games intended to deceive collectors uh, with the technology right now. I don't think there's really a way that a game is going to deceive a collector. People can detect counterfeit baseball cards right now. And a baseball card is a thin, often low quality strip of cardboard. Uh, a game is a label. It's plastic. It's a PCB. It's chips. Uh, there's, there's so many elements. If you go complete in boxes, even more of that stuff. But, uh, there's so many elements to a game that I'm really not concerned at all right now about a reproduction of Little Samson ever being fooled by a reproduction of Little Samson if I ever had to like really look at one. I'm hoping that the hobby never comes to the case where I'm actually going to break out like a jeweler's loop because I feel like that'll be the point where games are no longer fun if I have to take out a jeweler's loop to identify if it's real or not. Uh, I think we're a long way away from that. I've, there's there's some pretty good ones out there. There's, there's games that will... Uh, reproduce the printing on ROM chips and things like that. Uh, but I don't think there's games uh, to the point where it would really fool someone who's really looking for it. And just to 100% cover my ass, because some guy on some obscure forum will bring it up, I know that there were like factories that actually in the 90s would make real games in the day and then they would have bootleg operations on the side where they use the exact same factories to make essentially identical copies of real games in a bootleg form. So yeah, maybe there's there's almost perfect counterfeits out there. 
But I'm not talking about that because no one will come across those. And if someone did, they would probably never be able to tell. Uh, I want to give a special shout out to Counterfeit Homebrew. So there are sites that will counterfeit homebrew games, like literally games that people made in the last five years. They'll just put up on like OCDreproductions.com and you'll you'll find some homebrew on OCDreproductions.com. You put it into Google and you find this poor guy's NES homebrew game that he made. And at the bottom of his site has the license for the game. And it's like, do not redistribute or sell my homebrew commercially. And this stupid OCD reproduction site is just selling illegal copies of this game. But what's he going to do? He's probably just... He's just some guy. He's got a job. He doesn't have the the resources to like sue someone to take down his free NES game. Uh, just another just super disrespectful thing. Just stop buying illegal copies of software from people who don't want you to buy it. Just respect the people who make this stuff, man. Uh, there's some other stuff too. There's um like public domain games that people can just make. This is super weird because this isn't something that happens on any console during its lifespan, but just as an example, uh, Landmaster. It's a public domain NES homebrew uh, made by... Oh my god, let me give him a shout out because it's super cool to release their games to the public domain. Uh, Shiru. Uh, so Shiru made this game, Landmaster, released to the public domain. So you could get a copy of this game on AliExpress because AliExpress, they'll take whatever .NES file they can find on the internet and they're going to slap it onto a cartridge. But since it's public domain, that's technically a legitimate copy of the game. So I don't know where you want to throw that. That's just an interesting side note. And then also, uh, I used to have a uh, harder stance on NES Maker. I used to kind of consider it uh, kind of this side category of homebrew games. Because NES Maker is close to... Uh, it's not really close to... I'll say it's similar to RPG Maker... It's not as basic as that. It's more of an engine to make games. I guess like a, a game maker would be on PC. Not that I've ever used game maker. But for the most part in the game development world, I don't think we classify games based on their engine or anything like that. We don't say like, well, I was going to say, we don't say that, oh, that's an Unreal game. But we do say, oh, that's a Unity game. Regardless, I think NES Maker games can just be put into the homebrew category, and there's no real problem with that. And, uh, yeah. So those are aftermarket games. Those are, like, the different categories of aftermarket games. They're not all reproductions. They're not all homebrew. There is a whole wide world of games that came out on mostly NES and Atari because those are the only consoles I really care about. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's, there's an Atari Jaguar and SNES aftermarket game scene. Uh, but they are much, much smaller. Uh, I have a feeling this went a little longer than 10 minutes. Don't be mad at me. Maybe this isn't a side quest. Maybe that's the difference between a side quest and a microcast. How about that? So what did you buy, Tyler? Uh, I bought a copy of Ogre Battle Limited Edition for the PS1. And uh, it was the first time I realized that Ogre Battle on the PS1 is called Ogre Battle Limited Edition. What's limited about it? It comes in a double disc case. Super limited. So limited that every copy of Ogre Battle on the PS1 is the limited edition. Wow. What have I been playing? Absolutely nothing, because uh, doing wedding planning, that's over now. Dude, come March, I promise I will, uh, I'll never talk about my wedding again, <laughs> and uh, I gotta get all my hobbies back on track, and uh, I'll be playing video games. I'll hopefully be finding out more neat stuff about video games that I could talk about on the show. Because that's what I like to do. 
So uh, that's it. Follow me on uh, Instagram and, and YouTube and Video Game Sage. I'm Default Gen. Uh, you might as well go find Johnny Ayuchi at Johnny Iucci on Instagram and all those other places. And Stefan, who's Archon1981 and Art of NP on Twitter, if you want to look at the art of NP. And uh, yeah, see ya. Uh-oh, it's post-edit Tyler. Uh, just to cover my ass here, these aren't meant to, like, replace regular shows or anything. If I had to guess, Johnny put out his episode first, and he's gonna go into a whole two-minute speech about what this format is and what it means. Anyway, these aren't gonna replace shows. We're not looking to to replace the three of us with these kind of single-person shows, because I wouldn't want to listen to that all the time either. Uh, but if you do... In the context of how these are coming out, March is a weird month for us where we're unable to get together almost at all. In that context, if you do have suggestions for what you want these to be or topics or anything like that, feedback on this format, uh, get to us on Instagram. I think that's the easiest place to get us. And uh, thanks.